0: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
1: Welcome to On Just Terms. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Collins, SC, and Imtiaz Ahmed of the New South Wales Bar. Liz was called to the bar in 1996 and took silk in 2010, practicing in the areas of commercial law and taxation. Imtiaz was called to the bar in 2010 and practices in corporations, equity, competition and insolvency matters. Both are deeply experienced in the conduct of class action litigation, including shareholder class actions. In today's episode, we'll discuss advocacy in complex commercial litigation, the operation of the class actions regime and the nature of practice at the commercial bar. Liz and Imtiaz, thank you so much for being gracious with your time to join this episode of On Just Terms. We've been exploring with our guests the litigation and regulatory environment in Australia and what that might look like in the next few years. And obviously, we're in a period where Royal Commissions are more popular. The rise of class actions continues unabated. We're seeing contingency fees in some jurisdictions, greater uh, emphasis on regulatory actions, AUSTRAC, APRA, ASIC. I wanted to talk to you both as practitioners in this space, what you're seeing in terms of the changing nature of litigation and where the risks might arise for corporate Australia in the next few years, maybe starting with you, Liz.
2: There seems to be an increasing amount of litigation from my perspective. Um, I think the regulators are, are probably better funded than they were a few years ago under the previous government. Um, they've, there's a few more teeth They've been the subject of more criticism and that, as you know, feeds into class action litigation. I mean, the Royal Commission has been the source of, I can think of five or six class actions. Um, And I think that that means that hopefully that will translate into corporates being very conscious of their legal obligations and hopefully ultimately an upskill in standards.
0: And MTS, what what are you seeing in the environment? Look, I I mean, I agree. I I think I'm seeing... An increase in the number of class actions, but also class actions moving into slightly different areas than one might have seen previously. Um, so, for example, um, I think there, there's at least an inclination for people to bring class actions in relation to competition law cases. Um, so, we're seeing a few of those now, which previously we hadn't seen, um, and I suspect that's something that's likely to increase. Did you both think that, to Liz's
1: point earlier, that with uh it, funding is always an issue for, for our major corporate regulators, but there seems to be a greater appetite to pursue larger c- cases. P- perhaps post Royal Commission, as you say, Liz, that's that's the flavour. Do you think that they will uh, target those big continuous disclosure cases, those those big directors and officers duties cases, or will they continue to look for the um, the lower hanging fruit where they can get some sort of regulatory outcome? What, what, what's your sense of how the regulators going to approach the next few years?
2: The regulators generally seem to look not so much to low-hanging fruit. Um, I mean, there's a series of cases they, in my experience, ASIC uses as test cases for companies that have gone into liquidation or administration, the FOFA reforms. There's a series of um, cases which involve companies who've gone into, who've failed to test the legislation. But in terms of Big dollar litigation—they go after you know um, big corporates, in my experience, and I think the funders are the same, and that's largely driven by economics because the cost of those sorts of cases is very large. There's a lot more English funders in our market, and they're interested.
1: What, what about? Do you? Are you starting to see a greater focus uh, in our market on on cases that focus on directors and officers' obligations? Because obviously, in the class action space. Uh, they're, they're less likely to be targets, but I'm thinking from a regulatory perspective, it seems that ASIC uh, has a. Re- I think Joe Longo announced that in the next, that, you know, there's a top five priorities now, and directors and officers' obligations going to be a, have a refreshed look. In your own practices, are you seeing more instructions in that space? Doing more work representing individual directors and officers in MTAs?
0: Yeah, look, uh, I mean, certainly. There's, particularly with large corporates, there's a focus on protecting directors and officers where there, for example, is an investigation. So I think that's certainly something that um, corporates are looking at. From a regulator perspective, I haven't seen so much a focus on uh, attacking directors and officers. From my perspective, it's more a case of looking at cases on a case-by-case basis and saying, is there a case in relation to this corporate? What flows from that case? Uh, does it involve directors or officers? So in a sense, it starts from a slightly different perspective. Let me ask you
1: about um, how you like to work in this space. You've both got very large practices. A lot of it's, They're very diverse, but a lot of it focuses on what I'll call high-end corporate governance, continuous disclosure issues, compliance with those kinds of uh, obligations at the corporate governance level they're big cases, they're complex, um, they can take years to resolve, they, they may result, they may culminate in a trial. Uh, can you share your, your own experiences with how you like to be briefed, how you like to work with the solicitor teams, what are the good experiences, what are the bad? I think our audience would appreciate knowing, having a line of sight as to how barristers actually work in the, in the cut and thrust of modern litigation.
2: When you're taking, from our, from my perspective anyway as a barrister, when you're taking on a big matter, you want to know it's going to be managed well and there are some people who manage firms who manage things better than others and that's very important and you want to know it's properly resourced and to, you know, do that. Um, and the perennial nightmare from a barrister's perspective is that everything blows up in all your big matters at once. <laughs> it's like both children being sick in the middle of the night and you can <laughs> only be in one place at one time, but it's it's just if there's a good team and it's um, properly resourced and um, it's well managed then that that's something that you can generally work with.
1: is Is it becoming harder IMTAS, to manage the, uh, the your, a busy practice in in circumstances where cases are becoming more document document heavy, electronic data is more significant. You, you have to sometimes direct strategy, be across the forensics and know what the documents say. How do you, how do you meet that
0: challenge? Look, I, I mean, I think it comes back to what Liz was saying, that um, in a sense, as barristers, we're largely dependent on solicitors to help us with that. Um, and you can't overstate the importance of solicitors in terms of giving us the support that, needs, uh, that we need to do our job Um, And whether that's uh, people looking through a large body of documents to try and pick out uh, at least the first colour of what they think is relevant, or whether that's just organising documents in a way that we can digest it. Um, Whichever approach you take, it's, it's very important. Are you seeing a
1: change in the cases that you're briefed in? Are they getting larger? Are they getting more complex? What's the mix looking like from your, in in my, you know, my practice is a little bit more uniform in the sense that these class actions are large scale productions, four or five years. Uh, You can get into a certain cadence and rhythm. You, You maybe don't have that luxury.
2: I think we have more of a mix, or certainly I have a mix, and there's some things that come and go, and then there's other things, some regulated cases that are reasonably confined, but the class actions obviously are very large cases. The commercial class actions go for a long time, and they are very complicated. Yeah. Look, and
0: I I think there is a mix, and in part that's self-directed as well, because you want a little little bit of a mix in terms of large cases and small cases, because... If you construct your case, your practice around only large cases, um, there's inevitably going to be big gaps between them, um, and to be honest, um, it just gets a little bit, a little bit boring if you're doing one type of case over and over again.
1: Yeah. Focusing on class sections for a minute, I'm thinking about an environment that's been changing fairly rapidly externally. Like we've got a parliamentary committee looking at class sections, the ALRC, Victoria, and, and nationally. Um, lots of recommendations for reform, change to the continuous disclosure law, change to funding regulations. It's a choppy environment. In, in, through all of that, I'm not sensing a diminishing rate of frequency of shareholder claims, but maybe more diversity in the claims that are being filed. Or, Can you comment on that?
0: Yeah, look, I I think at least my experience is this kind of waves. So, you know, a couple of years ago, there were a lot of shareholder class actions. Um, Then for a little while, it switched back to product liability actions. Um, At least my experience is there's a few more shareholder class actions now. Um, And as I was saying earlier, you know, you're starting to see things about um, competition law cases, which you saw right at the very beginning of the class action regime, but are now starting to pop their head up a little bit. Um, And I said, I think it partly comes back to the idea of with a class action, what you're looking for is some sort of claim which involves an element of commonality. Um, and uh, I think that's that's the sort of key touchstone that um, the plaintiff firms are looking for is trying to isolate areas in which there might be uh, an area of commonality in, in the nature of the claim, uh, in respect of which a claim can be brought. Liz, this is a bigger question that, than
1: the current forum allows us to really get into the detail of but are class actions do you think achieving their purpose in the sense are they do you observe from the matters that you're doing that they're actually achieving outcomes for group members are they providing new avenues for access to justice is it imbalanced in the sense that there's a little bit over focus on the shareholder space maybe not as much on the social justice type claims or what's your sense of the environment is it changing
2: um, like my sense of the environment is that it probably isn't doing what it should be doing and that is um, achieving justice for a lot of people and that's because the, the cases that don't have much money in them are often cases that actually people really need their claims litigated but they won't be picked up because the funders aren't interested and not too many class action firms can afford to take you know more than one or so a year of those on and push them right through, especially against a well-resourced defendant. Um, And in terms of the larger claims, they tend to get buried in years and years and years of sort of interlocutory stuff, lots of documents. Plaintiff doesn't know what its case is. And by the time you get to the end of it, it, there's a very big integer of whatever the settlement sum is or, for that matter, a judgment sum, which is going to be allocated to costs and interest. And so I don't know what the answer to that is because they're complex claims, but that's not what Murray Wilcox had in mind when he drafted the legislation in 1987 or whatever it was.
1: It it does look like a very different um, practice to the one that I think Part 4A was designed to facilitate. Just before we pivot away from class actions, can I ask you one follow-up, which is not all of our audience won't necessarily have a full appreciation of what it means to take a, a class action or any complex piece of litigation to trial. You are both experts in that space and you've done it many, many times. And my observation is from having done it with you occasionally, that the, the amount of work involved is obviously enormous, but you need some things to align. You need witnesses who are prepared to cooperate. You need experts who are true, true specialists in their field. It, it just give the audience a flavour of the enormous effort involved in taking a case to that stage where you're actually advocating the position before a judge. Imtaz, you look like you've got something.
0: <laughs> well, I can tell you an anecdote. Um, yes. I, I can tell you, uh, my wife said to me, um, if I'm going to divorce you, I'll divorce you in November because you always have a large case in November. Right. And uh, it, it's it's often the case with you.
1: Yes, yes, I apologise <laughs> to her as well.
0: But, uh, I mean, that that's kind of a, it's, it's a guide to the level of commitment that you need to run these type of cases because they can take over your life for a period um, and you really do have to give your all because... Um, not only for the benefit of your client, but also um, out of respect for the people you've worked with, because these are cases which have uh, built up over a period of years. And really, once you hit trial, um, you're really hitting the pointy end. And in order to do justice to the case and the people you've worked with, you do need to give it your all. One comment I have is that we're litigating these cases at a trial
1: so far after the actual facts of the case that it's, there's a, there's a level, I don't say this pejoratively, but there's a level of artificiality about what we're doing in that
2: context. There certainly is. Um, Because, I mean, company executives and things happen, sometimes they're very senior, they happened 10 years ago. They don't really usually remember, you know, what happened. They can read documents and they can um, speculate about what might have been the reason why they did things, but it is artificial in that sense. Um, and that's, I think, unfortunate because it's, you know, the actual truth-finding mechanism of um, access to justice disappears and it really just becomes a question of who's better prepared, which I don't think, again, was what was intended.
1: Yeah. And, and I did say I'd pivot from class actions, but one last one on that. Um, without inviting you to comment on the policy of this, but the, the state of the law is there, there, are, there is not perfect uniformity in the way class actions are run between the states and, and at the federal level differences in how lawyers are remunerated, some different approaches to things like class closure, maybe a different view on common fund orders. Um, In practice, is that uh, creating extra challenges for the clients that you represent in terms of sort of predictability about how this case is going to actually unfold and getting certainty around quantum and those sorts of things? Is that that a problem?
0: Um, Look, I I think it is in the sense that where you have procedural differences like that, um, you're really just encouraging forum shopping. Um, and I think that can that can be a real difficulty because um, it means that the outcome in the case um, can sometimes not be driven by the merits of the case, uh, but sometimes by differences in uh, personalities or jurisdiction in which the case is being litigated, which, at least from my perspective, that, that's not a good outcome at a policy level. So a question to both of you, uh,
1: which is, again, a, a broader question than we have time to do justice for, but Undoubtedly, we've made some strides in the legal profession to advance uh, proper representation and diversity within our ranks. But it's uncontroversial to say we're not as far as we should be. E- even on gender, I think partners within law firms, far less than a third. Um, so so there's a long way to go. And I'm, I'm interested in each of your comments on what the profession to, can do to make sure we are representative of the communities that we work in. Liz, starting with you.
2: Yeah, um, we haven't gone anywhere near as far enough as we need to go. I mean, women leave the profession when they hit a certain level in droves because there's not a support for the fact that they've got children and they've got lots of other stuff happening and it's very stressful and it's not multidimensional. And it actually can be. And one of the benefits, I think, of COVID has been that a lot of people have worked out they can operate quite efficiently at home, but yet it means that they can also, they can do their work and they can still spend quality time. So there's less friction in the household. Their kids are sort of, you know, enjoying their company. I think that's been a sort of unforeseen benefit, I think, of that experience. And in terms of diversity, yeah, it's full of white men at the (laughs) law and it is getting better. But it's a slow road and it's full of people who went to private schools and um, selective schools and I think it's very important that we reach out to more diverse backgrounds and encourage people and give them a leg up.
1: Is it it as much a mindset that needs to change as opposed to actual tangible steps that the profession needs to take to make sure we're, we're not blinkered in, in our approach to, to the, the talent that we absorb.
2: I think it's a combination of lots of different factors, but it's also the feeder that, that comes through and the people that get into law school and the people who've got the opportunity to go to law school in the first place. Um, you know, I, I think it's a combination of things.
1: EMT there's a long, long way to go still, yeah. maybe some improvements, but even in the last 24 months around questions of creating a workplace that's fair and equitable and free from harassment, we, 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 there's an enormous amount to do.
0: Yeah, look, I, I agree with that and I agree with um, what Liz said as well. Um, I, for me, one of the key elements is creating pathways for people um, to access a profession um, in circumstances where they may not appreciate those pathways exist for them. Um, and I think it's 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 really going out to people who traditionally may, you may not see in the legal profession and saying to them, um, this is a place that's open for you, um, and this is a place. This is a part of a um, a group that you can be part of. In in the way that um, the
1: bar selects readers, and, and in, is that changing? Is there a more of a focus now to ensure that we're reaching out to people that we that, that don't have the same level of access as others?
0: Um, I, I'm not sure there's necessarily a focus on that. Um, I, I think it's partly evolving over time. So I, I think people are more conscious that they need to. Um, be more inclusive and um, open doorways to people who uh, for for whom doorways may not have been open previously. Um, So I think that that's good. Um, uh, One might ask whether there are more formal steps that can be taken. And I I think that's something that needs to be explored. Liz, on flexible work arrangements,
1: is there, uh, I I know that there is a bit of a push within the court structures to, to return to, you know, in person hearings. And I understand there are a whole lot of forensic reasons for testing witnesses and all that, but uh has COVID taught us anything about how we can sort of work more remotely and virtually generally that might be of assistance? Look, in I that?
2: think it has. I mean, I've got a, a, direct, a case management hearing before a judge who I won't name in the Federal Court who actually said to us at the last case management hearing, it's not a hearing, I'd like you to turn up in person for the hearing, but it seems to be much more cost effective and less trouble if people, if we just do everything online for, you know, just 10 minute hearings. And that's made a huge difference in terms of flexibility. And I mean, I imagine you were the same. I had years years and years of going to Melbourne on a Friday and you'd go late on Thursday night and you wouldn't get home till three o'clock on Friday and you have just written off all that time at vast expense and for no real reason other than the formality that the bar and the profession had thought was just the only way to go for a long time so I think it's uh, I'm not sure about the movement back towards everyone must be at work I think there has to be a balance and I think as I said before there's got to be recognition that there's been some positive aspects of that and it's felt I think men and not just women men and women who are parents of young kids have felt empowered because they haven't had to drag go into work and do that sort of stuff they've been able to manage their work-life balance a bit better and mostly successfully yeah. I guess there's probably been some bad performances but I've fortunately not fallen into any of them <laughs> other than my own teenagers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, uh, I have a last question, you'll be pleased to know Liz, which is um, I, I know you both well and, and you're my dear friends but uh, I'm also deeply, I deeply admire um, how, you, how you approach your practices and the way that you present yourself to the courts and the way you interact with our team. Um, you know, it's the representative of the best of our profession, Uh, a personal question, but I I was interested, uh, many of our audience won't know how you have each progressed to where you are in your career now. I know it's a long story, (laughs) so I don't need every, don't go year by year, but um, could you give each just a flavour of how you've progressed to this stage, the ups and the downs and what you've enjoyed? Liz, I'm happy to start by seniority with you. So
2: what, I was born you know. <laughs> yeah, in... Right. Yeah, we can
0: skip Deep, forward a little bit. Deep dark world, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, Well, I got into law school um, and I enjoyed law school. I loved mooting. I loved debating. I did a lot of that. That's the stuff I watch in my 14-year-old now is just me. I was obsessive. I did all that sort of stuff. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to work for Justice Murray Wilcox on the federal court who was um, a real role model for me and he was not only a wonderful intellect, he was a very moral man and, said, and taught me very much that the right thing to do is a very important way to live your life. Then I went to a big firm for a year but it just didn't click and I was desperate to get to the bar. So I w- went to the bar. I was young. I was 26. Yeah.
1: And is the is the is one of the attractions being able to sort of... Um you're your own boss and control your own destiny and, and you know, you, you're the face of a case and you're...
2: I think I was so young I was completely naive about any of that. I mean, I didn't have a mortgage and, you know, I, I, whatever it was that I was being paid as a first-year solicitor at Allen's was, in hindsight, quite a small amount. I didn't have great out. I might have had a cat, but that was probably about <laughs> it. I think I had a car, but I'm not sure. Right. So I was a bit naive about that, but I love the advocacy. Um, and I did, I thought, yeah, where I was was not quite working. So I liked the, I was always going to go to the bar at some stage and I just went earlier than I otherwise thought I would have. And that's just ended up being a bonus, I think. Um, and, and the flexible hours and so on has been a bonus. Yep.
1: And, and MTS, your journey?
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, I went to law school and absolutely loved it um, and loved the intellectual engagement of it. Um, luckily as I was really fortunate when I left law school, I, I worked for Kevin Lindgren. Um, it's my first job out of law school, and it was pure luck I ended up working for him. Um, but um, it was one of the really formative experiences because he was just a a, a lovely man um, and an incredible intellect um, and incredibly hardworking. After that, I went to um, went to a law firm for seven years, um, which was uh, which was probably a little bit too long. <laughs> um, but, um, I'll try not to take offence to that. Yeah, I've been in a <laughs> law firm for 22 years. But, yeah. yeah. Um, but I had I a master's in the middle there. Um, but um, I, I stuck around the law firm because I thought I needed to get a bit of the green off me. Um, you know, seven years might, you might say it's a bit too long. Uh...
2: <laughs> mouldy, mate. Yeah, exactly. It yeah, was mouldy. He came to read with me. <laughs> but
0: you, you, you've knocked the mould off.
2: Mostly I have to shake it up occasionally. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, but ultimately I, I decided to come to the bar because um, it was something that I'd always wanted to do. And um, I, I figured, to be honest, I don't want to be on my deathbed wondering what if. Um, and I figured if it'll work out or it won't work out, but at least I'll know one way or the other. Um, and I've I've really loved it. I've loved the intellectual engagement. I've loved working with people like Liz and you. Um, uh, I'm glad and- you got that in. Uh, Of course. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, it's just been a really good experience. Did you each have goals as to the kind of uh, practice,
1: subject matter areas and specialisms? You're both obviously deeply involved in class actions dear to my heart. I know your practices are more diverse than that, but do you set a goal to do that or do you fall into it because you do a few and the market recognises that?
2: I think it's the latter. Yeah. Yeah. When I was at uni, I loved um, public international law. and We both did Jessup, actually, I think yeah. eight years apart or something. I loved that stuff. I thought it was fantastic. But going and living in Canberra and working for DFAT didn't really appeal. No. And um, <laughs> I didn't want to go and work for AGS. Sorry, AGS. And that was, But I, administrative law I loved as well. And I just fell into this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you too, Jess? Yeah, it was, it was much the same. So um, the sort of work that I'm doing now is a lot like the work I was doing when, when I was at the law firm. Yeah. Um, and... I mean it was one of those things where I think I started doing this work when I was at the bar because people knew I'd done it at the law firm and had some background in it and um, I I mean to be honest I enjoyed it so it wasn't it was an unhappy thing that I fell into Uh, but you kind of get into a groove um, and you you get repeat work.
1: Well if I may say so you're both now leaders of um that specialism as well as others. So um, can I say thank you for being so generous with your time to join this episode and it's been really great to to get the backstory. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Thanks.
0: You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.